0: Being a pastor, a lot of times, you know, in that early part of that journey, I wanted to convince people and I wanted to Mm -hmm. tell them what to do and, and, you know, instruct them. And, And later on, it became more of, I just want all of us as a human race to do better.
1: Revelations, the place where we communicate truth to power. I am Cole Johnson, and I am so glad you're able to join us. This next guest is a pastor and an author, and he has an interesting way that he pastors to his flock. Ladies and gentlemen, the author of Apparent Faith and the podcast host of Carl's Coaching, Carl. Forehand Carl is his name And this Is his Revelation Thank you I'm glad to be here And there's other titles that you have too But uh, I will mention some of them later Yeah (laughs) Alright Now as we normally do with our first time guests And we hope that this is not going to be The only time you come onto the show uh, We Start with the segment called Open the way okay. we're going to open the way here is you are a midwesterner am i correct that's correct all right i think missouri is the state that's
0: right i was further south in in oklahoma okay quite a bit of time in texas and dallas fort worth but kind of migrated up to omaha and so now i'm about about an hour south of omaha Oh,
1: okay all right all right all right so you did you grow up uh in Missouri, or did you grow up in uh, another area?
0: Yeah, I grew up in Oklahoma.
1: Oklahoma, and okay.
0: Looking forward yeah. to the Oklahoma game later on tonight. <laughs> That's my, <laughs> my favorite team. and Yeah, that okay. affected me and influenced me. But I've a, been a Midwesterner since, oh, about 93, mm, so yeah. quite a while. All
1: right. All right, so yeah, tell me about how Oklahoma was for you.
0: I, you know, I think Oklahoma um, it was a good. I always say it's a good place to grow up. I don't necessarily want to go back, but mm-hmm. um, I was raised mostly in the southwestern part of it, where it's it's kind of like a desert. Uh, I didn't yeah. know that at the time, but it was just where I lived. Um, of course, there's there's a lot more. Uh, racism there, just by the fact of the the area I grew up in was mostly white. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, know, Oklahoma's a lot of off-road things, a lot of lakes and things to do off the road. Um, I was also influenced by my uh, part. I have a partial Native American heritage.
1: Ah, You know,
0: a lot of that culture. Uh, it's there even though i was i was raised mostly in white neighborhoods and you know um it was influenced by that but um yeah i oklahoma's a for if you 're a football fan it 's a great place to be of course um, right and you now it it was what it was i was relatively poor um and so that had an impact on me also,
1: yeah. Yeah, and I know a few Oklahomans, and, that, and you pretty much typified how they would describe it. Uh, it's it's just one of those places where, yeah, it's interesting, and there's a lot of things to do, a lot of outdoor things to do. That's right, that's right. But, yeah, mm, but the, yeah, what you said is pretty much on the money. Now, you said that you moved further south uh, to the Metroplex area. Uh, was this, like, in childhood or, like, in college years?
0: Yeah, I moved up to the northeast To go to college, went to a technical school, got a computer degree, and then um, just struck out on my own. My grandpa was uh, just amazed that I went to Dallas-Fort Worth and found a job in computers. I actually worked for Ross Perot, Um, and he was just as nutty in person as (laughs) what you see on TV, but I was a computer guy. For a while and then worked at Texas Instruments there.
1: Okay. And then, um, yeah.
0: you know, when the job market dried up, mm-hmm. we moved out of there. It was, um, oh, just a, a crazy place for a small town kid to be. Yes. Yeah. There was, you could do anything. You could eat any kind of food. You, but it was just really fast paced. You know, oh, yeah. as fast as Texas gets, mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, I think after a while, I was almost kind of glad that the job market dried up and and I had to move because right. I I think in you know it, in a way it was kind of killing me, you know, mm. live that lifestyle.
1: Right. Yeah, I can understand that. I have to, I, I just have to circle back. Okay. You worked with H. Ross Perot. Was this before or after he uh, decided to be uh, decided to throw his hat in the ring to be a president?
0: It was before that. It was, before. It was when, uh, around the time that he had sold out to GM, to General Motors, he sold electronic data systems and, and all that to... General Motors, and then after he sold out, was trying to tell them what to do, and they finally got rid of it. (laughs) Um, But I would go down to um, come over from the data center over into the corporate headquarters. He'd be down eating breakfast and just have a crowd of people around him and have that squeaky little voice, Mm -hmm. yet people would be all around him, uh, hanging on his every word, Uh, You know, he, and he, he, right after that formed another company that didn't, didn't really make it called Perot Systems. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, um, used to, you know, play golf as it were on the golf course there at Forest, on Forest Lane, where is where he started everything. Yeah. I don't think I appreciated the gravity of it when I was there, you know, that this was, would one day be an international figure, you know, but, it was just a job at that Yeah.
1: Yeah. I could totally understand that. Yeah. And here you are. You're trying to build your career up. So, I, yeah, I totally get that. You sort of have one eye toward the career and the other eye toward what you're doing at the moment. And it's not necessarily transfixed on any type of trans, uh, transcendent figure. Right. So, yeah, I, I totally get that. I totally get that.
0: Right. We didn't, you know, I couldn't have cared less about politics at that time. Right. I mean, really didn't care much about religion or anything. Just, mm-hmm. just making a little more money, getting out of the situation that I came from.
1: Uh, right.
0: Moving, you know, moving up in the world or whatever I thought at that time.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Now you, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's pretty much how a person around <laughs> late teens early 20s and probably even mid-20s would think so i totally get that yeah all right so how was the home life for you growing up
0: uh you know there's a lot to my home life we were like i said we're relatively um poor and again that's you know i don't know what you compare that to but um growing up my you know we found out later my father had a few affairs um Mm. It was, but we, you know, it was just what we grew up with. And my brothers and I would, would take off in the morning and play all day mm-hmm. and do outside things. And that was just what we did. And we didn't um, have many things. Um, but it was, now, still yet, my mother was was very conservative and very religious um, mm-hmm. And she taught at a Christian school for several years and and pulled up, you know, we were by default in that lifestyle, very conservative, very male-dominated, authoritarian kind of thing, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, mean, that's what we grew up with, that's what we knew and... um, you know, I was honry. I was, um, you know, learned to steal when I was in junior high. <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, I even though I was in a really conservative evangelical uh, play, you know, setting, mm-hmm. I was still pretty, pretty honry and um, didn't get in big trouble, but. But that's just because I was sneaky, I think. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Writer and author, uh, honored to have him here. Call Forehand joining us on Revelations, and he opened the way quite well. And we're now going to segue into the next segment, which is called Bridge to Prosperity. Hmm. Now, you mentioned in the previous segment that you have a degree in computers you also have a background, at least an educational background in human resources, or at least you have some sort of education in it. Right. So how has both your, well, how has your collegiate career, I'll put it that way, uh, shaped the future ministry that we'll talk about later?
0: Well, I, you know, I think the computer, um, degree fueled my desire um, to get away from, you know, my impoverished background, I think. I remember seeing my, uh, my sister had a friend that lived in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I remember visiting, for whatever reason, I visited that friend, and I found out this guy was You know, it was something as simple as he had his own apartment and he could order pizza whenever he wanted. Nice. And that to me was like, I want to live that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to be, you know, I don't want to be hungry and I don't um, have my own place. And so, you know, that kind of fueled the first segment of my life, that first nine years in Dallas, Fort Worth, that, that I was just trying to meet some goals that I'd written down of making a certain amount of money, um, having a car, having my own lifestyle and, and and eventually, you know, having a family. And so that, that fueled that in, um, 1993, Mm -hmm. then I went back, went back to school to finish my bachelor's degree and did that in Bible and human resource management. Um, it was honestly just, it started just to finish my degree. I wanted to have a bachelor's degree instead of an associate's, and it had some experience in, in my field that I was in so I could work, but um, it was also kind of had a different desire maybe to help people, maybe to to move into, um, you know, and I, I really didn't know clearly where I was going, but... um Grace University in Omaha offered a degree completion program, and I uh, kind of jumped on that, and of course wanted to get it done quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, so jumped on that that chance, and then then as I'm going through that, kind of start start thinking more about a, a ministry type vocation, even though I, you know, even though it was. By then, I was getting up towards closer to two th- year two thousand, Y two K, and I, I, was making more and more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, started thinking more about people. I think, and what could I do to, um, to help people? And that that's what kind of drew me over into the ministry side of it.
1: Okay. because right, I figured I was like, okay, I see ministry. And I see human resources like, oh, I see a connection there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what, was, or what would you say is the one moment where you could say, ah, call forehand as a minister of, as a minister of Christ mm-hmm. began?
0: Yeah. You know, I'd say it started even before I got to Omaha. I am driving down the road and um, I said, man, what would it be like to be a pastor someday? And I dismissed it, though, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I've always been a little shy. Um, you know, I'd pass out doing a silent prayer. You know, mm-hmm. I, I failed a, a speech in college or almost failed it because I just forgot about half of it. I was so nervous. Oh, man. So I dismissed that. But then when I got to Omaha and got away from the distractions, you know, the busy, busy life of, being in Dallas-Fort Worth, right. um, it was another one of those experiences of just kind of driving down the road and going, I, I think I could do that. You know, I think, um, and I think I'd be good at it. I think my heart is, is geared towards that. And so, you know, with the bachelor's degree and partially in Bible, uh, just kind of gave me the confidence that, yeah, I could probably do this.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny how confidence can just be the the rocket booster to a whole lot of things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, I, what I have encountered with many ministers is that they normally have had many ministries, and normally the one that seems to be the one that speaks to people the most is not necessarily the first one. Right. What was your first ministry?
0: Oh, the first person's probably, um, uh, youth ministries.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so as I'm training, um, helped out the church. And of course, I gravitated back toward, um, the church that I came from. Um, you know, when you're insecure, when you have, um, uh, I would call it, you know, when you feel rejection throughout your you know if you've had some rejection throughout your life you go to the thing where you can fit in the best right and so that's that's what i was drawn to it was a the denomination that i came from that i could fit into the best and and wouldn't feel too much rejection or didn't have a big chance of re- being rejected you know and that's the way i kind of felt about it but um as you know then that So that was youth ministry and things like that, that that I could do, you know, you could do fairly easy without a lot of, um, credentials, you know, and, and it was fun, you know, until I got a little older, (laughs) you know, be kind of old for that.
1: But right. Yeah. Yeah, Totally understand that. Yeah. All right. All right. So, uh, did you, it's, it's funny I'm hearing human resources, uh, person um computer guy and he's gone to ministry he's done youth ministries but I haven't heard much in the way of writing so when did this become a part of your everyday life
0: that's a good question and it it actually was was um the seed was planted in in high school um I I hated English and, and you're
1: not the first writer I have heard say that.
0: That's right. Yeah. I, I literally hated it. Um, I would cause all kinds of problems in class. But then um, two things happened. One was I was in a play, obviously unnatural for me to be in a play, mm-hmm. um, but participated in the junior, senior play. And then, but the big thing that happened was an English teacher who, um, challenged us to do creative writing oh. and when she did that she threw out a lot of the rules like don't worry about you know don't worry so much about grammar don't worry about so much about spelling but but letting your mind flow and just let loose and let this out and um, and then um, re- received a lot of praise for what I wrote I remember writing about, uh, something kind of dark, like a suicide or something, you know, and, and she just said, Oh, that's the best thing, you know, and, and praised it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just enjoyed that process of, you know, whatever's in my mind, letting that, letting that out and, and finding that flow. I would call it flow. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, when, when your brain, Kind of quits thinking real logically and just just lets go and starts getting creative. I um, that was the seed, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and then then in college, you know, the things we write were heavily critiqued, and and I lost a little bit of that. But then when I went through that degree completion program, um, a couple of things happened in there. <clears throat> One thing was that. As um, is that everything was written. It was it was a fast paced thing. So we would take a class, and then four weeks later, you'd write a paper. Mm-hmm. And so again, I'm writing, and they, right. and they weren't concerned again with with spelling and grammar as much as they wanted content that you understood what you just learned. Right. So, I, so I'm learning to write, and then the other thing was that some of those. those classes, they would let you do it kind of pictorially. Right. Basically draw a picture and and make sure you understood that book study or whatever. And all of that just kind of fueled my creative, you know, kind of re-energize that creative process and, and that, that, you know, expressing what you understand in your mind, but getting it out, you know, kind of emptying your heart. So, I would say maybe that's, you know, and then then just eventually the the process of writing sermons, you know, eventually all of, you know, all, of, you just, you, you literally have to write before you can speak, you know. Right. Um, I guess I was kind of the thing that finished it off. And I wrote a couple of books in, in 2000 that I wouldn't even show to you now.
1: <laughs>
0: but, but. And I'm really proud of this this one that I've written this time. It's, it's truly from my heart. Yeah. And it's, you know, from my deconstruction and my my changing beliefs and really evaluating hard what I believe. So I don't know if I answered your question. You kind of took a little <laughs>
1: path there. <laughs> no, you, you answered it quite well. And, and it does make sense. Because, mm-hmm. uh, like I said, you're not, you're not the first writer I've heard say, you know, when I was growing up, I really didn't like English because it just was too <laughs> regimented. You know, I just want—and you describe the process beautifully. You, you, you love—you love it for the catharsis that it presents.
0: Yeah, and Cole, I'm, I wonder sometimes if we um, discourage some of our creatives by mm-hmm. the rules, you know, you know the mm-hmm. grammar rules and all those. You know, there's there's people in society that love to do that. Love to edit and love to, but I think maybe sometimes we discourage our creatives early on in the process uh, because it's too rigid, it's too structured, and that's not how their
1: brain works, you know. Right. Yeah. Know. Yeah. But it makes sense. It, it makes sense that it, it could be a it be a deterrent. Right. I and mean, it's like I just I just want to let free, let loose. Yeah. I, I guess similar to how how singers are, you know. Yeah some who are just gifted to do it and they can just open their mouth and all of a sudden notes just come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you stick a, you stick a, 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 a note sheet in their face and it's like, oh, I can't do it. And they seem to recoil. <clears throat> so yeah, I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. My,
0: my friend who's a Christian singer, she, um, she said this yesterday of my writing. I I said, you she was writing songs and I said, you shouldn't, maybe consider one of my poems and she said I think a lot of what you write could be a song mm. you know it's the same same kind of process yeah I guess
1: hmm uh, he might have another career <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm pretty sure it's not singing nah. <laughs> I love to write songs yeah mm-hmm.
1: Parent Faith Carl Forehand is joining me on Revelations and we now are going to get to the third segment and we call that segment Behind the Purpose and there's two touchstones I want to park on and touch on in this segment uh you mentioned one of them uh which is uh the pastoral aspect of you uh the other is you are a life coach as well so how did carl's coaching become a thing
0: carl's coaching was kind of born out of um um this desire, where I've, you know, over the years being a pastor, um, just found my, um, I, I remember saying, you know, it's just, I feel really ineffective as they, they expect you to be a counselor as a pastor. And a lot of times there's no training at all. Right. Uh, and I felt ineffective because I was just trying to give advice, and I didn't really feel qualified to give that advice. Um, hmm. Coaching. Um, when I found out about a, a coaching program, it's called Spiritual Leadership Coaching. Okay. Spiritual Leadership Coaching is um, instead of instead of asking instead of um giving advice, it was it was asking people questions and helping draw out from within them the answers they probably already had. Mm-hmm. And that intrigued me a lot. Um you know unfortunately it was in a denomination and <laughs> a belief system that I was kind of kind of wrestling with.
1: Mm.
0: And as I began to wrestle with that, one of my fellow um people I was going through <laughs> with kind of I don't know if you'd say ratted me out or whatever, but this, you know, denominationally based, um, coaching program, I didn't quite get to finish. Mm. But I had, um, later. So, but the Carl's coaching was still had, had been kind of birthed then. and, And what it, what it evolved into is not necessarily me sitting down with people and saying, you know, Uh, Let's go through a session. Let me sell you a session and you come on and me coach you. But what it it evolved into, and it was partially and kind of connected with my plant-based eating and so on. And I I really just wanted to share my experience and my stories with people and see if that would somehow uh, resonate with them and kind of uh, help them along in their journey. Now, you know, being a, being a pastor, a lot of times early, you know, in that early part of that journey, I wanted to convince people and I wanted mm. to tell them what to do and then, you know, instruct them. And, and later on it began, it began, became more of not, not that I want to tell you what to do and I want to convince you of my beliefs, but it became more of, um, man, I, I just want all of us as a human race to do better. Um, I want us to to stop being so retributive and start being more restorative. Mm. I want us to to learn how you know if Jesus said love your you know love God and love your neighbor. I, I want us to get that. Yeah. You know? And Nicole, one of the one of the impacts on that uh, was my son. And if you get to the very back of my book, there's a, there's a little part in there where he wrote an afterword to my book. Mm-hmm. My, my, son, my son was impacted early in his life by um, we lived in an apartment building where there was a crazy lady that lived there and a lot of other stuff went on. But one of the things that impacted him was he had a friend that was different color than him. Right, And he became very, very close with that friend. So then, when my son went to college and, and studied history and was going to be a teacher, well, he started out as a computer guy like me. Mm-hmm. Then he became a history major, and then he studied African American studies and the civil rights movement. And when he began, he studied that partially because of it. Uh, There's a few friends like this kid at the apartment building that, that kind of motivated him to care about all people, not just his people. And Mm -hmm. he learned that on his own because I I admit that I wasn't the best at that. I I always had good intentions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just do well. And so um, he uh, was part of that story. My son. And in the book, I talk about the meeting we had at IHOP with my three adult children. I realized they're teaching me, they're, they're instructing me. They're, 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 and I realized I've become complacent. I don't even remember what your initial was, but that's where I got to.
1: <laughs> no, well, the, the original question was, uh, uh, Carl's coaching and just judging by your answer and the, the depth of it, it, it seems to have it seems to have formed, informed you, and shaped you into everything that has happened after. Uh, like w- one of which is you're a pastor. So, uh, are you currently uh, a pastor of a church now?
0: Um, I'm not. I was for about 18 years, three mm-hmm. at three different churches. Okay. And, and Cole, what I was very good at in those churches was fitting in. You know, I mentioned that before. Right. Like go into a small community and kind of meld into that community and relate to that community and, um, you know, kind of build a church. I was also, I think, pretty compassionate, um, you know, cared about those people. Mm-hmm. But um, in, in small towns, as a pastor, you get hurt a lot. You know, it's you love people you risk and, and you sometimes get hurt. So right. yeah you know, about eighteen years we were small town pastors, small church pastors a um, lot of lot of good, a lot of reward that came from that. we got to care for people and love them, love their families um you know, but also some hurt
1: yeah thank mm-hmm. yeah that's one thing that you rarely ever hear uh with pastors is that you 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 see them in the pulpit, you see them in community, but you rarely ever see how they are on the opposite side, where they they take on they take on the hurt of all of their parishioners, mm-hmm. and you don't see how it affects them. Yeah, when it's behind the closed doors. So right. yeah, I could totally see how that would really, really adversely affect anybody. Yeah, you, me, anybody.
0: Yeah, you can't. There's no other way to love except to risk. Yeah, and when inevitably someone doesn't get their way, you know they. Um, so you know, it's it is what it is, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and it's it's yeah, and it's quite understandable that
0: yeah.
1: that you would seek, um, I guess, I guess, seek other ways to minister. Uh, but before I do get to those types of questions, uh as a minister, I wish to say as a pastor, let me put it that way. Okay. As a pastor, when you would when you would deal with church hurt, how would you try to um alleviate that pain? Mm. I I think um
0: a lot of ministry sometimes is um the addiction of, yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, in my life, I was addicted to some things, uh, things like video games and one church where hunting was the thing. Then I was a hunter mm-hmm. um, until I became plant based and I couldn't hunt anymore. <laughs> but right. I eat what I, yeah. So, mm-hmm. but there's also, you know, the addiction of approval. Right. Oh, man. And um that that's probably biggest I think for, for pastors is those it's so easy. People want to have someone they idolize and someone they um whatever it is, whatever that dynamic is. Right. With a preacher, pastor and speaker and that you, you kind of get addicted to them to the praise. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. Mm-hmm and yeah. Um, yeah so uh, i guess that's it i don't know for sure you still <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yeah i i could totally understand that uh if there was anything that you took away in your 18 years being in the churches that you presided over what would be one incident where you could say man i was proud that i served as uh, I guess you could say as a, well, intermediary between God and them yeah. in that situation. Yeah, if you I, can name one situation, what would it be?
0: Well, I'm, it may not be a specific situation, but it's a specific um, thing. Okay. That is that there are people from every place that we've ministered, um that still come back to us today, still feel a special place in their heart because we love them genuinely, mm. and that we love them from our hearts, and they felt it and they knew it. Um, and I said that's dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. That opens you up to hurt, right? Um, but it also gave us the chance to to genuinely. Um, show the love of Christ to, um, however distorted religion is and everything now, but but just to be the, be like him and love your neighbor. And when we, when we truly did that, there's people still to this day that, that, you know, we don't talk every day. We don't, we're not close friends anymore, but they'll touch base with us occasionally and they'll, they'll just, um, Kind of refresh, um, that friendship and say, you know, say in whatever way we genuinely appreciated you loving us. Yeah. Deeply, you know. Mm. And, and that's, that's what I'm proud of. That's, mm. that's what, what, what I love, you know. Yeah. And been through, you know, may have been through, yeah, through setting through them. Them with them in a funeral situation might have been when we were there at the birth of their child, it might have been that we were there when they struggled in their marriage or whatever, but but just that we were uh, we genuinely loved them, Mm. and so in a way that's worth it, right? Oh, yeah, Yeah. yes,
1: totally worth it, yes, totally worth it, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally worth it considering that that's the charge that jesus levies upon us that we're supposed to (laughs) you know love love god and then in turn love one another as god loves us yeah
0: Right. right exactly
1: life coach pastor and writer Carl Forehand is joining me on revelations and we've come to the last segment of the show. It is called bring to light. And in this segment of bring the light, what we're going to do is talk about his book, apparent faith and the first thing that jumped out at me was the parallel that you drew between earth fatherhood and how God is a father to us. Yeah. So how did you come up with that concept before you even wrote what you did in the book?
0: Yeah, I I um mentioned earlier I I had a had an encounter with my children as they're adults and we were we were at an IHOP restaurant, and they they started they were talking about politics and religion, which we never did in our house. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, because that's what I was taught, don't talk about politics and religion. But they they started talking about it, and they were teaching me. They were teaching me to be compassionate. They were teaching me, and here I am as a pastor of almost twenty years, and so. Um, what it started in me was a question, was a questioning, of maybe I'm wrong. And, and, and um, I began to genuinely evaluate whether I'd been complacent and whether I'd, I'd lost You know, I'm following along with my denomination. I'm following along with what I'm supposed to do. But have I really grown? Have I really uh, examined my beliefs in, in a while? And so I stood up in the pulpit one day and said, um, we ought to at least entertain the, the idea that we're wrong. If our faith is any good, if our faith is anything, then I should be able to examine it and say, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm, I, am uh, i have just followed some other people and I haven't really followed what I should. So I began to examine my beliefs. And the best way to do that for me was to number one look at it through the lens of Christ, but also I read a book written by Paul Young called "Lies We Believe About God," and that caused me to just kind of wrestle with things. And it didn't convince me of anything; it just made me wrestle with stuff. And I began, I began to look at um, the experience of raising my children. And as as I looked at that that fatherhood thing, which I I think I did probably mediocre, but I I started looking at how I raised my children. And as I examined that, I said, God has got to at least be better than me. He can't be worse than me. He can't have a worse temper than me. He can't be more retributive than me. He's got to be more restorative than I am. Mm -hmm. If I can't, turn my back on my children, then how can God turn his back on me? And so, right. you know, I, I wrote the book not in, a, in an attempt to convince anybody of anything. I just wanted to journal what I went through in examining my beliefs. And just just to go back through there, you know, and look at things like, um, you know, God is good. I looked at also, you know, in the meantime, my grandchild um, Jackson he was born premature and had challenges and was you know God is good we say that all the time and right. prayer and challenges we, we you know I just looked across the incubator at my daughter who was struggling mm-hmm. and and you know we're all crying and and struggling through this, what does what does God think? Where's Where's God at right now? What is he? You know, what is he doing? What's he? What does he think? And you, you know, you just feel a presence of Him just being there, right? right? Right. And um, so you know that that's kind of what it was like. And I um, the so motivated to look at God through this lens. Then I spent, you know, maybe 20 weeks. I, uh, I eventually, for other reasons, quit my job and, and took some time off. And I was fortunate enough to do that and just sit down and, and started week by week, just going through all these different issues that I never had time to address before and started to apply that lens of how did I treat my children? How did I think about my children? You know, in simple things like celebration. How did I celebrate with my children when they learned how to ride their bike? Right, I yeah. didn't. I didn't make them praise me. I didn't make them tell everybody how great I was for helping them ride the bike. We just celebrated together. And, and how? You know how does that relate to how how the Father, Son, and Spirit relate to us? So
1: mm.
0: yeah, I'm, again, I've wandered off from your question,
1: but no, no, you <laughs> did fine. You did fine. You did fine. Cause it actually led me to the, the next question I was going to ask outside of the juxtaposition that the book basically raises the comparison between earth fatherhood and heavenly fatherhood. What in your mind as the author is the most important lesson to gather out of the manuscript?
0: I would, I would say the most basic message is that God I just wrestled real heavily with the idea that God is either retributive or restorative. Mm-hmm. Either God is out to pay us back for something that he knew we were going to fail at, mm-hmm. or God is restorative. In, in my mind, the greatest story ever told was the prodigal son.
1: Mm-hmm
0: that it just brings tears to my eyes when I, when I think about that, that story. The story's been painted, it's been rewritten, it's been told about forever, that it, it wasn't the son um, correcting his ways or anything. It was the father that ran out to meet him, and however good or bad of a father I was, mm-hmm. um, uh, God's better than me. And, and God is more like that prodigal father. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's restorative. Yeah, his yeah. heart is to restore us. Oh, we can mm-hmm. think about race relations or any of that kind of stuff. God's heart is not to pay us back, God's heart is to restore us, yeah. and and I guess yeah, that's the biggest thing. In that in all of those eighteen or so topics that I danced around, and some of them, some of them I dug in deeper than others, you know. Mm-hmm. But but uh, you know, just like just like nationalism and and you know, a love for war and things like that, you know, where's God's heart in that? does does god does God sit on one side of the civil war <laughs> and say you know I'm for this child and not for that child does God sit on one side of the mexican-american border and say, I'm more for you than I am for them yeah <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. is is God restorative or is god retributive is god petty that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing
1: hmm well, I mean, just in reading the Bible and, and understanding as much as I can of his nature, I can't say that I know all of his nature because the next person who I me who can understand fully fully God's nature would be the first. Mm-hmm. But in just understanding God's nature as best as I can tell, yeah, things like being petty and being full of retribution, that is not him. That, that just, right. he, he doesn't strike me as that type of figure. And like and and like you said, and perfect parable talking about the prodigal son, he does strike me as the sort that no matter how far you have drifted away from him, no matter how deep you may have sunk in sin, how mm-hmm. how wayward your ways may be, even currently, right? God still has his arms open and saying, "Welcome, son or daughter." Mm-hmm. I mean, he just is mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. He's welcoming. Yeah, and he and he and he. Doesn't judge and he discerns, but he doesn't judge. He doesn't say, Yeah, you're horrible. Right. It's you're mine and I want you to come to me. I love you. And yeah, and I love you and I unconditionally do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, I think that lesson for some reason we get into these inane, and I do say inane, Mm -hmm. battles between Christians and atheists. Or Christians and other religions, it that mm-hmm. that factor seems to be lost. That simple factor of mm-hmm. we believe in a God is just saying, "Look, you can have whatever blemish you have. You're human. Yeah. I just love you. I love you.
0: Yeah, that's right." Can I tell you a story real quick? Do we have time? Yeah, we got time. All right. This um, past summer. It's it's like the middle chapter of my book. It's on page ninety three out of one hundred and seventy eight. So, um, it's called the tea shop. And as we were on kind of an adventure, and I, I wanted to ride scooters and I wanted to do all this adventurous stuff, and in Taiwan, we're in Taiwan where my son lives, and mm-hmm. so I wanted to go on this adventure, and I had a scooter accident. So it derailed. Some of the it derailed the the what we were going to do anyway, um, and so we go back to the northern part of Taiwan to the more civilized kind of um, city up there, and so we're in Zhongli, and I I go I say my wife says we want to um, buy a teapot for our daughters, we want to get something from here, you know, to bring back to my daughters. And so Tanya, who's Taiwanese, and her husband was from the States, um, mm-hmm. she's our host, and she's kind of showing us around. She's a friend of my son. And she said, okay, get in, and we go to the tea shop, and he takes us into a tea shop. And this guy, you know, uh, I didn't know at the time, you know, whatever, but he's, he's probably Buddhist, and he's – and so she takes us into this tea shop, and we say, well, this is what we want, and we're expecting like a Walmart experience, like let's get in and get out and get our teapots and let's go home. And right. He said, no, sit down. And so that began an experience. And this dude, um, so he sells us some teapots, and he, we agree on the price, and then he starts macrame a little um, chain, Keep the lid on for each of these three teapots that we bought for my two daughters and my wife. Mm-hmm. And then he um, starts telling us about his practice, his yoga type practice, you know, and he's, yeah. he's demonstrating his flexibility and all these things and telling us about his practice. He's all lit up and all excited. And um, then he found out we were vegetarian, we were ve- vegan, and he starts, he says, Oh, you know, and he, says something to his wife and pretty soon she brings out tofu and and brings us a meal and all the time he's serving us tea and this is kind of a ceremony in their culture and so on. And he's serving us tea and every once in a while he gets up and he goes and gets us some sunflower seeds or something he thinks Americans would like. And right. You go bring them back and show them, go you know, give them to us and he's all giddy, you know, and um, then he sit down and he, he started to write something on paper and I asked Tanya, I said, what is he writing? She said, well, it's hard to explain, but, um, you know, it means something to him. And I said, well, is it about us? And he said, yeah, it's about you. And I said, wow, that's really touching. You know, I started, my eyes are starting to tear up and, and then, then he brings out this, this liquor. I don't know how you feel about drinking, but, uh, (laughs) Mm-hmm. He brings us out this liquor and the dude, there's several guys that are kind of hanging on his every word in the shop. And, and they, they see Yeah, that's a, that's a special stuff, a special stuff. And it's unopened. It's like a mm-hmm. holiday liquor that they don't right. usually give to foreigners. And he gives, he gives him, he serves me some of that. And I, yeah. I don't remember much about it, except it was pretty strong. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but he, and then he, you know, he's, he's writing for us, and he's, he's serving us, and I just get the sense that he's trying to love me. You know, he's trying to, trying to serve me and, and make me feel welcome. And, um, Cole, that, that experience changed my life. And it, it wasn't a, it was a Buddhist guy, you know, and neither one of us was trying to convince each other Of anything, neither one of us is trying to evangelize. You know what I mean? We're just two human beings that we're trying our best to be reverent to each other, to honor each other, to honor each other's cultures, to love each to love each other. You know, and and so I'm, I'm writing the second book just based on that experience, about all the lessons I learned from that little tiny guy. You know, he was so, I can see his face, you know, without even opening my eyes. I'll never forget him. Uh, he just really touched, he touched my heart. And, um, that to me, that's what it's all about. You know what I mean? Wow. You know what I mean? It, it's, yeah, it's when, when Jesus, you know, 2000 years ago, started telling stories, you know, and trying to relate to us hard-headed human beings, you know, that's what he says. Love God, you know, and love your creator, and then love each other. Um, I, I think that's what it's all about. I don't know.
1: Mm. <laughs> well, there is no more perfect way to end this interview that that's a wonderful story yeah. wow and well i am i am glad in a way of not wanting to leave this interview but being blessed by the story i just heard mm-hmm. I'm so glad we've come to the end with that story because uh, hopefully it will touch your hearts as it has mine. Uh, this has been a wonderful, wonderful experience. And the last anything that we do is the segment called plug tune In, And basically it is a, an ode to a hip hop group. And it is where you get, sir, the privilege and the opportunity to tell everybody where they can find you where they can find apparent faith and where they can possibly find the future book. You just said that you're going to be writing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's actually already written, but Carl's coaching is, um, it's just carlscoaching.com. It's good. The K not a C Um, carlscoaching.com. That's where my blog originates, which also is where my, my podcasts come from. And then they go out to (laughs) iTunes and so on. Once I put them there, um, the book, Apparent Faith, What Fatherhood Taught Me About the Father's Heart, is on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. It's wherever you can find books. Usually you can find it. Um, it's from a, kind of an independent publisher called Choir with a Q. Right. And they're they're doing a lot of neat stuff right now. But um, I am lucky enough to just kind of – I stumbled into that to be in um, – Um, but yeah, you can, you can order it on Amazon and my son doesn't like that (laughs) because you don't like Amazon, but uh, if you don't like Amazon, go to Barnes and Noble and there's a couple other places where you can find it.
1: Sometimes the experiences that we have are generated by what we come across, come to, what we actually see and stumble upon. The beauty of life is that we get to know a little bit more about ourselves by seeing how others move, how others live and how others have their being. The word says, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And I think when the father talks to us, the father in heaven, I mean, that's what he wants us to understand that we are in perfect harmony. We are in sync. We are in compatibility with one another, no matter how light or dark, the shade of the skin, no matter what. What country which you reside, no matter what tongue you speak, no matter what religion you practice even, and most of all, no matter if it's man or woman, boy or girl, the experiences that we have are unique to every one of us and we all need to know a little bit more about ourselves in each and every person who comes in contact with us. Many thanks to Carl for his time on Revelations, and you can catch his podcast, Carl's Coaching, and get his book, Apparent Faith, in the show notes. For changing the world, one conversation at a time, I'm Cole Johnson, and this has been Revelations. For more on Revelations, go to PIPPA, spelled P-I-P-P-A, dot I-O, and all podcast directories. Music by Lakey Inspire.